13, verses 15 through 17. If you love me, you will obey what I command, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another counselor to be with you forever, the Spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you will know him, for he lives with you, and he will be in you. And then over in chapter 16 of the Gospel of John, verses 5 through 15. John chapter 16, beginning with verse 5, and we'll read down through 15. Jesus says, Now I am going to him who sent me, yet none of you ask, Where are you going? Because I have said these things, you are filled with grief. But I tell you the truth, it is for your good that I am going away. Unless I go away, the counselor will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. When he comes, he will convict the world of guilt in regard to sin and righteousness and judgment. In regard to sin, because men do not believe in me. In regard to righteousness, because I am going to the Father, where you can see me no longer. And in regard to judgment, because the prince of this world now stands condemned. I have much more to say to you, more than you can now bear. But when he, the Spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all truth. He will not speak on his own. He will speak only what he hears, and he will tell you what is yet to come. He will bring glory to me by taking from what is mine and making it known to you. All that belongs to the Father is mine. That is why I said, the Spirit will take from what is mine, and he will make it known to you. Let's pray. Father, we pray that as you have communicated clearly in the Scriptures that you sent your Holy Spirit as the one who makes truth known. We thank you not only that you have revealed these things to us, but you've revealed them to our hearts. You've laid them all over the place of the world. Your fingerprints of truth are everywhere. When we look to the left, the right, over, all around. And yet in your word... You've explained yourself. We pray, O oh God, that we would be receptive to that truth and allow that truth to not only be an idea in our heads, but we trust it would touch our hearts. And we pray it would fill our lives. And we praise you for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, most of you uh, either heard this morning already or already knew that today is Pentecost Sunday. It's 50 days after Easter, and it is the day to remember the outpouring of God's Holy Spirit upon those believers of the early church, those that were followers of Jesus Christ. And it is certainly a, a remembrance of a supernatural manifestation of the Spirit of Christ himself, which built the foundation of his church, just as Jesus promised that he would, in fact, build. God's Spirit has been given to us, even today, in order that we might continually be guided and directed and enabled and empowered to go into all the world and make disciples. I uh, finished a book recently um, on entitled World Religions, and at first I was a little reluctant to read it, and on the, on the other hand I was compelled through many discussions recently upon hearing more and more people speaking about the fact that all religions in essence are the same, and other extremes are that nobody can seem to ever figure out what the truth is, so why even bother anymore? And as I decided to begin to look at this in a kind of a technical sense on what these different belief systems were, 
I was somewhat discouraged at times and somewhat challenged at other times because I kept looking at all of the mix of ideas and thoughts that seemingly have uh, filled our world with a, uh, an awareness of all of these differing uh, concepts and ideas about God. And uh, as this book began to unfold about the ways that these belief systems have shaped the world historically from, uh, uh, from the beginning of Judaism on, and uh, the pursuit of what that means and what it looks like and how it's put into practice and what people or, or religious uh, persuasions teach about what is the right way to live and the prize at the end on what you and I might gain from that. Uh, some of those we might chuckle over, some of it we might cry over. Some of us we realize that maybe we have believed more like other religious movements than we've even believed ourselves. I was rather intrigued by sometimes how these religious movements, and it gave a kind of a historical count, began with a certain kind of, of emphasis and a determination and commitment, and they all tend to become something different as the journey goes on. Um, each of uh, the world religions, they, they claim to have a truth, <laughs> and they claim to believe the truth. It's kind of scary that we Christians kind of give up the same kind of thought process and we have the same attitudes like we really have truth and I'm not trying to minimize that. I'm simply trying to say Pentecost was the time in history that God should fix this problem. And somehow because of the impartation of truth himself inside of us, we should not be misled. What really complicates the search for truth is that how we live in a world that not only is classified under one of the major five or six, uh, depends on the, the understanding of these world religions, how they embrace these concepts, but we are in a world that has another kind of twist that believes you can just mix them all up together and then pick out whatever you want. It's sort of like the mixed salad approach where truth is somewhat sort of in the mix of all these and you just sort of take what you like and you grab what you like and you you, you know, you, you throw away the rest. If this uh, spirit of confusion and deception is not bad enough, one of the fastest growing religious beliefs today is that you can be without God and you don't need any of them. And so as I thought about uh, the, the concept of, uh, of, of what all this entails and how it's working in my mind, I was uh, reminded that at Pentecost that is supposed to be resolved. The challenge we have as Christians is to understand how beautiful is the flag of Christianity and what Christianity stands for. At the same time, I trust that today it might humbly uh, begin to bring us back to perspective and realize that if in fact you and I have any close concept of truth, what in the world are we going to do with it? It was beautiful in Sunday school how in the perspectives illustration how that it became rather clear that you and I are in a world that they've already heard something, they've already believed something, they've already got some idea, and their whole world is influenced by this belief system or this practice. And yet in perspective, it shows the message, the simple message, the plain message of Jesus Christ has and holds the power to not only change our lives and fill us with a dancing joy but it has the capacity 
to set other people into an element of joy and perspective in life. A lot of times when we think about the approach to the religious persuasions of the world, we can easily begin to buy into the idea someone thinks that way or somebody believes that way. As Christians, we know the key isn't so much what's in our head. The key is the one who lives on the throne of our hearts. And that's what's so distinct and unique about the Christian faith. I trust that as we come to this day, this day in which is to remember the great outpouring of the Holy Spirit, that we might realize God has not only gifted us of himself, but he has come and worked in a way that truths will bring us to a place that you'll know, you will know, you will know. You will have not only the confidence that these things are true, but it will begin to manifest itself in the reflection of our lives as consistent with truth. It's a little scary to think of the impact of the movement of all the, the peoples in the world, especially the one that really stirred my heart is godlessness. A world or a people group completely without God. John chapter 14, again we'll read that in verses 18 through 20. The Gospel of John chapter 14, let's read verses 18 through 20. Jesus says, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Before long the world will not see me anymore, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. On that day you will realize that I am in my Father, and you are in me, and I am in you. Now, many times when you, you listen to the teachings of Jesus, especially as presented in the Gospel of John, you can walk away wondering, wow, that's pretty deep. And that's the underlying concept of what makes uh, uh, the, the, the Christian faith so unique, is Jesus did not simply present the Gospel in a way that anyone could sort of take it, run with it, know all the right answers, but not be part of it. In other words, the beauty of the Gospel of John is that you and I begin to understand and grasp the concepts of Jesus Christ when Jesus Christ is in fact truly living in us. And the confusion that has been overflowed from our faith in the world around us is that somehow Christianity has attempted to be a kind of faith that you can come and see and check it out for 90 days and decide whether you like it or not. And that creates a lot of confusion and complicates the movement of Jesus Christ. Jesus came to dwell with inside of us. And when he indeed becomes the true internal ingredient of our life, then the pieces begin to gel and the formation of life validates what's in the mind what matches what's in the heart, and what's in the heart begins to manifest itself in the way we give it to the world around us. You and I know, if you understand history of Christianity at all, you know there's some pretty interesting movements out there, and there's some pretty bizarre belief systems. The scary thing is sometimes I act bizarre. I don't manifest the full presence of Christ. It creates confusion. Pentecost is to bring us back into alignment. Pentecost was intended to be the validating evidence of God among us, the presence of His Spirit in us, transforming us, and overflowing from us. So I trust that we might not walk away thinking, well, we got one up on everybody else here, but we humbly come to the place where Pentecost is the time where we all once again reconsider the truths that God has revealed to us and whether or not that truth is the driving force of our lives.
Because without that, Pentecost is never going to make sense. Many times we just start out with Acts chapter 2 and we jump right in there. We roll up our sleeves and we start reaching for a piece of that power. And somehow that will create a kind of unique concept all of its own. But when we think of Pentecost, I, I trust that we would try to understand the richness of God's Word and what really was kind of behind the scenes that let Pentecost happen. Many of us are well aware of uh, Pentecost when the, 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 the uh, tongues of fire fell down upon the church and it began to electrify it in some sense in which the, the, the manifestation of the languages came and it landed upon all representatives of all the nations and of course they went out uh, witnessing and proclaiming the gospel. But, <clears throat> excuse me, but before we get there we need to look at some things that I believe are crucial in a world that isn't quite ripe for the outpouring in a way that it will transform the world by the gospel. And uh, we want to look, first of all, the question or concern is that whether or not you and I have come to this place where we are receiving or ready to receive God's outpouring once again. Now, we all would like to reach for the power button. We would all like to reach for the, the, the manifestation of God's outpouring upon this earth. But are we ready in the sense that the early church was ready? Because what we do not always understand is when you jump to Acts chapter 2, you've obviously skipped chapter 1. And you've obviously skipped a lot of other scriptures. And that's something that you and I need to humbly consider. But we will go to Acts chapter 2 either way. Acts chapter 2. And let's begin uh, by looking at verses uh, 38. Now we'll start with verse um, 33, and we will read down through 39. Acts chapter 2, beginning with verse 33, and we will read down through 39. Peter is still preaching his sermon, and he gets to the latter part of it. It says in verse 33, exalted to the right hand of God, that is Christ. He's received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit, and has poured out what you now see and hear. For David did not ascend to heaven, and yet he said, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off from all whom the Lord, for all who, whom the Lord our God will call. When we think in terms of uh, this particular tail end of the message, we, you and I must recognize that being cut to the heart is not simply just a phrase that's kind of added on there. It is the clear evidence that this movement of the Spirit was real. The real evidence that is being communicated in the story is this cutting to the heart. And it's the cutting of the heart that Jesus talks about, the spirit of truth at work in the world. 
It creates an unsettledness to the situations. It creates a desire for the present situation. And it gives us the resources for the future impact of the Holy Spirit. The purpose of Christ coming and giving His Holy Spirit upon us is to not be orphans running through this world, not really knowing who we belong to and what our purpose is all about. But God has given us the Holy Spirit to allow truth become personal and precious to us and has a way of communicating it to the world that has not known. And that is the power of the Holy Spirit in accomplishing His mission and purpose. Well, when we think about the cutting to the heart, we might say, well, that already happened to me, you know, back 10 years ago, 15 years ago, 20 years ago. The Holy Spirit is always at work among our lives, and the secret to the evidence of God's Spirit in our life is our hearts are still bleeding from truth. If we're here today and we believe that somehow the message is for someone else, or we believe that somehow this gospel is for someone else, or we believe, or somehow we believe that that repentance thing is for someone else, or baptism is because someone else, because I've already been baptized, or whatever it might be, the Holy Spirit is constantly at work in our lives, cutting at the heart. Now that sounds kind of, you know, graphic or whatever, but the secret to repentance is that our hearts are cut. The preparation was that these disciples who were in essence broken in heart when Jesus died for their sins, they were once again rekindled with an, with an awareness of his resurrection and confident that yes, he's back. And then he leaves again. Forty days he teaches them about the kingdom of God and the purpose of why salvation has even come. The richness, the renewal experience of those 40 days And then he leaves. He says, you wait. Can you imagine? Wait, wait. They waited 10 days, but they didn't know how long they were supposed to wait because Jesus didn't tell them. He said, just wait for the Holy Spirit to come. So in that preparation, they spent large segments of time, it says, in prayer and the Word of God. And so it's important that you and I re- consider that concept of being cut to the heart has something to do with the Word of God and this prayer. Something about you and I longing for God's uh, voice and His presence among us. The preparation for the Holy Spirit must have something to do with the cutting of the heart. It must have something to do with the repentance that leads into baptism. And so we think about that concept, it might seem as if, well, I did repent a long time ago. I said I was sorry to God. Well, repentance is not something you and I do. It's something that illustrates who we've become. We're a people who the Spirit of God is continually cutting at the heart. That's Old Testament circumcision. It's the cutting of the me so that God can shine through me. Those are the connections that takes place. And as we think in terms of the beauty of God's shaping our hearts or cutting off the parts that are simply fleshly so that the Spirit is free to speak and express Himself through our lives. Repentance does not make sense unless the heart has been cut. To tell ourselves, I have to repent when I don't feel cut, I don't feel bad, I don't feel like sin, I don't feel like there's anything I can think of that I need to repent from, repentance doesn't make sense. 
but to a church where the Spirit of God is stirring, presenting us to be a people that are unique and set apart for a godly purpose, then the cutting constantly is a good thing, not a bad thing. It's simply bringing out those ingredients in our lives that are deep and hidden and seated and rooted in there. We give them to God. So 10 days, they're constantly allowing the truth to be presented and talked about and shared, the experiences of Christ, the teachings of Christ, and then those times of intimate prayer. God, you do your thing. You shape our lives, you change us, you transform us. So I want to look at the two primary ingredients that allow that repentance to take place. Because it's one thing to see repentance as something you and I do. It's another thing to be the reaction or response to something God does. When God begins to do the cutting of the heart, then repentance becomes a gift we give back to Him. Thank you, Lord, for exposing the realities. I present my life to you in an expression of repentance. If it's simply just uh, a, a, a response to a bad feeling, then repentance can be something I do over here, but inside I'm still living over here. When it's a God thing, the two come together. And he brings us to a sweet place of realizing that what God wants to deal with is what may hinder us from the great outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And that's what we want to look at. Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews chapter 4, verses 12 through 13. Hebrews chapter 4, verses 12 and 13. Now, hold the thought of the cutting of the heart, because it's important to grasp and allow our mind to wrap around how that God does His unique uh, surgical procedures. Because sometimes we may have allowed ourselves to believe, or we've been led to believe, or somehow we believe the Holy Spirit comes in, does the surgery, and you never even sign the paper. That'd be like you just showing up at the hospital, and the doctor just gives you some kind of funny stuff, and you start floating off, and he does the surgery, and you wake up and say, what in the world happened? Well, I did a procedure for you. Well, you didn't ask my permission. Now, as funny as that might seem, some of us might somehow theologically have bought into that concept that if we pray for the Holy Spirit, somehow He's going to do it without our permission. Somehow He's going to do it without you and I knowing what we've done wrong and what needs to be changed. You and I need to realize, biblically speaking, that you and I have to hold the truth about ourselves. And when that is given to God, He will take care of that. Allow me to explain that in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12 and 13. The Word of God is living and it's active. It's sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even the dividing of soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered. It's laid bare before the eyes of Him to whom we give an account. And some of us might say, well, I'm not going to read that word. That sounds dangerous. That's the cutting of the heart. There's no way you and I are going to change unless you and I read the book that tells us what is true. There's no way we're going to change unless you and I allow the Word of God to do that surgery. Until He cuts the heart, our repentance will simply be on what we agree can go versus what God says That is something we need to talk about and deal with. It's the Word of God that begins to cut, but He does not remove the problem. 
Repentance is what you and I take what's been revealed, and we lay it before God and say, I'm going to sign this paper. I'm going to let you do the surgery. Thank you, God, for revealing it to me. The process of revealing is often short-circuited. We, we kind of grow up in this instant gratification world, and we, we somehow brought that into the concepts of the church, and so the process of repentance has been condensed into maybe a one-time event or maybe a, a, a one-hour sermon or whatever it might be, is you and I need to realize until the Word of God begins to really speak into our lives, the surgery process inevitably is going to go bankrupt. And therefore, we create a whole new concept of this movement, and our prayers for Him are an entirely different dynamic. Turn with me to Psalm 139, verse 23 and 24. Psalm 139, verses 23 and 24. Again, I hear conversations quite often, you know, when you make a moral and fearless inventory of your life, How do we go about making that? Can't I just say, I'm sorry, God, for my past and continue to move on? And my answer somewhat is kind of a a twist on maybe sarcasm or whatever. And I simply say, if Jesus has promised that everything you confess, he will forgive and he will cleanse, you could tell him the short version or the long one. If he's promised to take all of it that you confess, then why would you only want to lay out a couple different items? Let them pay for it all. And so you and I need to realize that often that seemed to come in because we know the, the right answer is that Jesus covers it all. We know the right answer is that, that somehow when we come to faith, all the rest of it is sort of just buried in the past. But that's not the way we're, we're changed. We are changed by moment by moment, day by day, reflecting on the Word of God, which does its, its surgical work in the heart. But you and I need to realize that prayer is coupled together with that. Notice how this prayer is communicated in verse 23 and 24 of Psalm 139. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there's any offensive way in me and lead me in the way of everlasting Some have clearly said to me, I'm only going to confess what I know I did wrong. And yet the scriptures allude to the fact that surgery quite often is not only when a doctor knows what he's getting into, but you've also signed another part of the form. And if there's anything else wrong while you're in there, could you please fix that? And that's what you and I need to realize, that the life that allows us to change is when you and I are given the great physician permission, we're trusting him that what he's doing, he's going to do a great job. So that when you and I are brought into uh, this relationship, you and I are going to constantly know life is always about repentance and cleansing. Repentance and cleansing. And you and I need to journey on realizing that the Holy Spirit's intent is to simply get a magnifying glass and make our sin look bigger. Romans chapter 7. We're going to jump ahead here. I got into a discussion not too long ago about the law. We all know as Christians, the Old Testament, you might as well rip out of your Bible and throw away, right? No, that's not what I'm saying. 
But you and I need to recognize that sometimes within our modern culture, we've got some rather interesting concepts going along because we know the end of the story, and that is that somehow everything's going to be fine between you and I and Jesus, okay? But that's not what the Bible teaches. When we're talking about Holy Spirit work, you and I need to humbly say, how does the Bible truly teach about the changed life? Is there really shortcuts to the end result? Or is there a way in which God is able to not only do His great and glorious and deep work, but how do you and I respond to these things and allow it to take place? Well, the first thing I I want to allude to is in Romans chapter 6, before we jump to 7, and that is the concept of baptism. I'll simply mention in in verse 3 through uh, 4 at this time, Romans 6, 3 through 4, or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. The hope of a future life, the hope of a changed life, the hope of the life that is called eternal life, only comes through the door of death. And that death is the cross of Jesus Christ. So one of the key ways, not only by looking at Scripture, for God to highlight those qualities in our life that are not so godly, is you and I need to take a steady gaze upon the one who died on that cross. And the more that you and I can visualize all that he did, He will begin to illuminate in our heart or enlighten our soul as to the areas that don't reflect His beauty on that cross. And so you and I need a relationship with Jesus Christ, otherwise the highlighter doesn't work. It's one of those highlighters you get and you run out of ink, you know. You're in college classes and you know you got to take notes and highlight, and the highlighters, you might as well throw them in the trash. It can be frustrating, but you and I need to realize that without a relationship with Christ, it's trying to highlight truth, and it's not highlighting. We need to understand the beauty of how He highlights that in our lives. The Holy Spirit is the one who will allow it to be highlighted, but you and I must respond to it and give it to Him and say, Lord, this is what I need you to remove from my life. He highlights it. He illustrates it. Okay, so baptism is is an identity statement. It's a time in our life where a repentance has brought us to a place where we have truly desired to live differently or in the line with God's Word. Baptism is when you and I publicly take that and declare it to the world around us in a declaration uh, that we are making a stand for the Lord Jesus Christ. But now let's get to Romans chapter 7. Because here is the mystery. It seems as if in Romans chapter 6, by then you've beat yourself up so much or you've overkilled yourself with the concept of the cross that you're on the road to victory. And sometimes we can get the idea that once I'm baptized, everything's fine. I've had many people come to me, can I get baptized again? Can I get baptized again? Well, how many times have you been baptized? Well, I, I, I really know what it means now. I, I got it, and I'm assuming when I come out of the water, I, I am all okay. Romans chapter 7 really comes after that. Chapter 7. Somebody grab... No, 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 I'm sorry, I'm in the wrong place here. Verse 7 of Romans chapter 7. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? Certainly not. Indeed, I would not have known what sin was except... Talk to me. 
through the law, okay? For I would not have known what coveting really was if the law had not said do not covet. Now notice here, but sin seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment produced in me every kind of covetous desire. For apart from the law, sin is dead. Once I was alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin sprang to life and I died. Naturally, the reaction to that is, I found that the very commandment in verse 10 that was intended to bring life actually brought deaths. For sin seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment deceived me, and through the commandment put me to death, so then... A strange statement, the law is holy. Its commandment is holy, righteous, and good. Did that in verse 13, which is good, then become death to me, by no means, but in order, here it is, that sin might be recognized as sin. It produced death in me through what was good, so that through the commandment, sin might become utterly sinful. You get that? If you do, you're really smart. But let me try to explain it. Something good has just now irritated you. Something holy has made you feel extremely unholy and unworthy and unqualified. Some of us don't like that valley. As a matter of fact, there's common teachings all over the Christian faith. Don't go through that valley. Why would you go through the valley? But what is the purpose of the law? The purpose of the law is to not make us feel bad. The purpose of the law is to transform us. Just as the purpose of Christ's coming is to transform us. But repentance operates on the fact that sin really gets ugly. It feels ugly. You want to get rid of it so bad. But somehow if we know that Jesus covers it all, and we get to Romans chapter 8 before we go through 7, you and I are going to assume that I don't need this law. I don't want to be told anything in my life that makes me feel bad. But you need to realize, look what's happening in the later part of the chapter. Verse 14, we know that the law is, somebody read it, spiritual. But I am unspiritual. The problem is not the law, the problem is what? Us. Okay. Then I don't need to read the rest of the chapter. What you and I need to realize is, you and I need to be exposed to the spotlight of God's holiness. And the way the spotlight shines is to not simply pray for God to do it. It is to let the Word of God be highlighted and programmed in our hearts. We need to take the journey through the Word of God. That's why you have a Genesis chapter 1 verse 1 that goes all the way to the book of Revelation. Is It's God's unique plan and purpose to let you and I be found out. So Pentecost is about the hearing the cutting of the heart, and the humble attitude that says, Lord, let your Holy Spirit flow. Because I need to be cleansed. I need to be renewed. I need to be empowered. I don't just want a shortcut version. I don't want something that will sort of cover it and give me a false power. I need the the changing work of God's Spirit within me. Well, I can't leave you hanging there. Romans chapter 8, verse 1. Therefore, there's now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit of life has set me free 
from the law of death. In other words, that law is more like a gravity law. If I step off here, I'm going down. The law of sin and death is the ingredient or quality of life that when you walk without Jesus Christ, you're going down. But because of Jesus Christ and because the gift of His Spirit, He will credit you as not condemned so that you and I can defy the law of gravity of sin and death and He gives you a new law through His Holy Spirit. Verse 3, For what the law was powerless to do in that it was weakened by the sinful nature, God did by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful man to be a sin offering. And so He condemned, not me, but what did He condemn? Sin in this sinful man. In order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us, who do not live according to the sinful nature, but according to the Spirit. The day of Pentecost was a time where people were desperate. They weren't expecting any power encounter. They were expecting a truce encounter that would change their heart, it would change their lives, and it would ultimately change the world. It's easy, I recognize, to try to reach for something that avoids the valley of decision, is what it's called, It's when the truth begins to do its work and the truth must work very deep within our hearts for transformation to take place. And that is why we spend time trying to search through the Scriptures and understanding the reality of the doctrines and teachings of Scripture so that when you and I hold them up, we could say, that's where I need to change. Those are the areas of my life that need to be given to God. This is what my life is all about. Jesus has guaranteed a victory for those of us that come to the place and acknowledge we are defeated. And that is why Jesus said He didn't come to call the righteous. He's not saying righteous people are disqualified. He's saying those that believe they don't need to be cleansed. He can't do anything with But He came to save sinners like you and I. He came to work in our lives in a way where we acknowledge our need and where we're willing to go through the valley of decision to let the Spirit of God search deep so that He can give you His power to experience a changed life. Let's pray. Lord, we come to You acknowledging that we are absolutely dependent on You and the stirring of Your Spirit to experience a new life. We thank you that through your Son, Jesus Christ, we have been given the final evidences of revelation. And through your word, through your Son, Lord, we can experience that life that truly shapes us. Thank you, Lord, for your promise, not only for us, but for our children and our children's children. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. God bless.